This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I remember once the black students would do outreach, they would you know, reach out to the poor in the community and they would bring in like these young kids who were from the hoods mm-hmm. or some folks who didn't look like they had material wealth yeah. to the church. And you can kind of sense like it was creating some discomfort in the church to where they would kind of start suggesting, you know, maybe you guys shouldn't <laughs> do this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And we we're like, huh? Like you probably you shouldn't just, you know, there's another church that y'all should probably like recommend they go to. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Russell Berry. How do you choose between caring about your body and your soul? That may be an impossible question to answer, but sometimes we are asked to do just that. Do we have to sacrifice one for the other? Shobaraka felt this tension at different times in his life, whether it was in the transition from rich to poor, from one city to another, or from armchair intellectual to activist. Shobaraka is an internationally known recording artist, author, speaker, and co-founder of the Anne Campaign. He is also the leading artist for the Juneteenth Faith and Freedom documentary soundtrack. Please join me as I ask Sho, where you're from? I'm from California, but, you know, I was born in Calgary, Alberta, in Canada. And as of right now, I reside in Atlanta. So I've spent many, many years in Atlanta, almost enough to say that I'm from Atlanta. But I technically say I'm from California. So how did your family end up in Canada? So my father played college football. He got drafted by the San Francisco 49ers, but didn't make it past the training camp. Got cut and Canadian Football League called him up and was like, hey, come up here. So he played, I think, about seven years in Canada. And then the Saints picked him up afterwards. So he finished his football playing career in New Orleans. Nice, nice. And so how old were you when you moved? Yeah, so I think I was around four. Got it. We lived in New Orleans, but I do remember the end of his playing career because he played about four years. So I do remember going to games, meeting some of my favorite players, That's when I pretty much fell in love with football, going to the arena, going to the Superdome, going to practices. Wow. When we would go out places, folks would know who he was. And then around seven years old is when we moved to California. And so from seven till about my 20s, I lived in California. Got it. What prompted the move to Southern California? So my parents went to high school in Los Angeles, Crenshaw High School. And then uh, once... Football was over. They wanted to return to California. New Orleans wasn't that good for our family, if you will. Mm. Uh, A lot of drama. But it wasn't too far after that when my parents pretty much divorced and split. Mm. But yeah, so as soon as his playing career was pretty much over, we headed back to Cali. So what was your relationship like with your dad? I mean, you sounded like, you know, he was like this hero, this celebrity. What was it like growing up with him? Because I know sports also requires a lot of time. Absolutely. In retrospect, you look back and you're like, oh, he wasn't present. Like, I probably wanted 
him to be. But during the moment, it was just, oh, that's my father. Like Whenever he shows up, he's the world. He's active. He's present. He wasn't the kind of individual to be there and not be present. Mm. But it really hit hard once his football career was over and we moved back to Cali. Like most athletes, they have no understanding of what they should do when they're done playing ball. Some folks get involved in drugs. And so my mother and father got heavily involved in drugs and kind of ruined their lives. And so my father actually, for like a three-year period, just disappeared, like literally disappeared. But what was, I guess, the consolation in all of that was I got to know my cousins. The matriarch of our family was our grandmother, and she had this huge property, kind of like in the country of California. Mm. And it literally had, like, I think, 11 bedrooms. Wow. And so, yeah, my grandfather pretty much built it with his own hands. And so anytime there was hardship in a family, we lived with her. It kind of created this nucleus that is unbreakable even to this day. So my cousins are like brothers and sisters to me. Mm, that's beautiful. So I couldn't help but wonder of the extremes that you discuss going from the height of seeing your dad a celebrity, a mm-hmm. football player, all of what that affords to hitting the hard times, seeing the money lost. Do you yeah. remember when he disappeared? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we can touch on those extremes as well because it wasn't just a social extreme like missing my father or viewing my father in a particular light and him not being there. There was that disparity, but you also, you know, change (laughs) economic statuses. My mom just believed that my father was going to provide for her all of her life. And so when he disappeared, it was like, well, now we're on Section 8. government assistance. So you got the economic extreme, the racial extreme as well. We lived in pretty wealthy neighborhoods. I remember going from very wealthy neighborhoods where it was somewhat diverse. It wasn't like we were the only black kids, but to now live in uh, more blighted communities because we couldn't afford to live in some of your upper middle class communities in California. And so I remember going to school with kids was like, why you talk like you white? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so you have that so you have these these uh, different I guess you could say extremes that you're dealing with wow um, let me just circle back because you have siblings tell me a little bit about where you are in the birth order and how did y'all talk about or try to make sense of this disappearance during that window of time and I have two older brothers and so there's three years difference between each of us. So my oldest is six years older than me, and the one is three. And then my sister is like almost three years younger than me. And so, you know, each person felt it differently. It's really interesting. I think my oldest brother felt it the most because he was old enough to see what was happening. He's preteen and he's seeing the arguments. He sees the dissonance. He sees the tension and he saw the infidelity. And so it weighed on him. You know, myself and my sister, for the most part, we were just like, they just mad right now. And they, you know, eventually they'll make up and, you know, everything will be right. And even when it was kind of like a separation, it was like, I guess we'll see dad every now and then. But I also feel like it affected my sister because my father really, really, really wanted a girl. That's the reason they had a fourth child. She was like daddy's little girl. And so when he disappeared, I know that really affected her. And then also, you know, obviously affected my mother and put her in situations that were unfortunate. And so she became something that she should have never had to become for us, you Mm -hmm. know. And we talked about it, but, you know, shamefully, it didn't seem like it was abnormal. And I say that because... 
all of my other cousins, their fathers weren't around either. And so literally my my, <laughs> my mother has three other sisters and all three of her sisters were raising children by themselves mm. or remarried or, or in relationships that were unstable. And so for us, it was just like, well, we knew what it was like to see two parents in a household and to see a father love their kids. But there was still a lot of instability and dysfunction that weighed on us. And my oldest brother, like he talks about how he became a Christian much later than the rest of us. But he talks about his drug addiction and how he felt the need to try to find approval and love in another man mm. because my father he didn't feel affirmed by him and so being around other dudes gangsters and you know drug dealers the affirmation that he got from them led him to drug addiction just always trying to feel approval and significance and it, that wrecked me because I realized like oh this hit him much harder than it hit me but it just hit me differently how did it hit you? I definitely think it hit me in a way of, of seeking significance, you know, addiction probably in different things like the approval of females, the approval of just trying to be cool and showing like, hey, I, I'm enough. So arrogance, <laughs> sharp tongue, fighting a lot. I think one of the greater formations in my life was hip hop music. And so it's funny how you'll listen to the voices of authorities around you. And the voice of authority for me was hip hop music. My brothers and cousins always listened to hip hop. So at a young age, I remember my parents used to have me read a lot of Harlem Renaissance stuff because when we would do projects, you know, they were like, you ain't going to school doing no Martin Luther King. Everybody's going to do Martin Luther King, okay? You're going to do somebody differently. And I'd be like, well, who am I going to do? Like, do Langston Hughes, like, do, you know, this person or that person. So I, at a young age, I was deep in the Harlem Renaissance. And so I loved poetry. Ultimately, I started off as a poet. I used to write poems and give them to girls. And then <laughs> I often say, I realized that the girls was liking the rappers more than they was liking the poets. And so I was like, well, I need to switch. I need to figure out how to <laughs> get these bars off. And so then uh, that's when I started rapping. And hip hop became a way to transmit ideas in my life. And so if Pac said something, if Big said something, if the Wu-Tang said something, I was like, well, how do I make this my own truth? Mm -hmm. I think for me, I was very impressionable. I, I remember being in grade school and my father disappeared. And then he reappeared in junior high. So I just remember him reappearing in my junior high years and him coming back, picking me up in a car, driving like in circles around the city and just crying, weeping, apologizing for mm. being gone. And at that moment, I was just happy that my father was back. It was mature of him and humble of him to apologize and to pour his heart out to me like that. But he didn't need to do all that because just his very presence was enough for me. Mm. But what I'd come to realize, you know, a year later was that this man became a Christian. And uh, he realized that the life that he used to live was no longer the life that he was going to live moving forward. And so I immediately, like soon after that, ended up living with him. That's when my life began to change as well, when I began to kind of seek the Lord in ways that were really interesting. How did you find out that he was a Christian and what was the impact that that had on your own spiritual journey? I found out because my brother was reading his Bible every day. I was like, what, why is this man read? He ain't no pastor. I was like, what is this? <laughs> literally, Russell, I used to wake up in the morning and I'll go get breakfast before school and I'll see him at the table reading his Bible. Literally, I've never seen nobody read a Bible like that before. Mm. And I was like, why is this man reading his Bible? He does not preach. And so <laughs> he made me go to church every Sunday, but he never like, 
sat me down and was like, hey, do you know the Lord? But he lived the life in front of me. And eventually my one of my older brothers became a Christian. And I used to see their interactions change. And I would see how my older brother would. Now, he was the one who would share the gospel with me constantly and talk to me and have me stay with him for a week at a time to do like discipleship meetings and groups. And I'd be like, why are these folks so fanatical about Jesus? I don't understand. They're not Kirk Franklin. <laughs> yeah. And my father ended up getting remarried. He married a minister, a woman who, a preacher at a church. And I will say that didn't help though, because she was the type of individual who, although she was a minister in the church, when she was not in the church, she was a wicked, evil individual. Hmm. And so I kind of resented my father for that because he was kind of passive in that relationship. And so he allowed her to talk to us any kind of way. And so that left a bad taste in my mouth when it came to like the faith and the types of church we went to because I would see her shout every Sunday and I would see her extol the mercies of God and come home and, (laughs) as King says, create an earthly hell for us. Mm. So when did it become your own in a deep way? not just something you were observing and wondering what were these weirdly fanatical people doing? How did that happen? So my older brother, his name is Dahadi Lewis. He is a pastor actually now in, in Atlanta. And uh, Shout out to Dahadi. He <laughs> went off to college. He's three years older than me. So we never went to school together, never went to junior high together, never went to high school together. He was always old enough to just miss me. And so he was always kind of like an idol of mine, if you will, mm-hmm. athletically, even like morally to some sense. He was just a good guy. He just uh, never got in a lot of trouble. And so when he would call me and talk to me about Jesus, I always respected what he said, even though I was like, bro, I'm out here getting high. I can't be listening to what you're saying. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I respect it. And when I was uh, about to graduate high school and decide where I was going to college, I knew I wanted to go to a HBCU. And so my parents were like, well, hey, why don't you just spend a summer with Dahadi? You can kind of like get a taste of the college life during summer and then go off to Alabama. And so I was like, yeah, that'd be great. But I was like, oh, he gonna have me doing all this Christian stuff. <laughs> he did. I went the summer and spent it in Texas where he was. And he had me in all these little discipleship groups and they had a college ministry impact and they were doing a whole bunch of stuff. I will say this, it was revolutionary for me because it was a bunch of young black kids or college students living for Jesus. And that to me was was strange. I was like, y'all really love Jesus? Like y'all like really, really, really love Jesus. <laughs> and then he also introduced me to Christian hip hop. Like I had never heard Christian hip hop before. And so he gave me two CDs. He gave me Cross Movement CD, a Heaven's Mentality. And he gave me uh, The Grits, Factors of the Seven. And I remember listening to those CDs thinking like, it's not terrible. <laughs> it's not Wu-Tang. It's not Tribe, but it's not terrible. And I, for some reason, only the Lord knows, as some will say, like it was the intercession of the Spirit regenerating me even before conversion. I go to college and I'm still listening to these CDs. I'm still listening to this music, even though I know that I don't really have a true heart's affection for Jesus. My brother said, hey, when you go to Tuskegee, just do me one favor. Just go to a Bible study. I'm not telling you to not party. I'm not telling you not to do this because I know you're going to do it anyway. But just go to a Bible study. And I was like, I'll do that for you. So I start going to this Bible study, man. And eventually that Bible study, I go to one of the meetings and they show a promotional video for a winter conference. And uh, this winter conference has 
the group Cross Movement performing at it. Mm. And I'm like, oh, that's the group my brother gave me the CD for. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's called Impact Conference and the video was real cool. And I was like, yo, that seems like it's going to be pretty dope. But they was like, it's going to be like $200. I was like, well, I ain't going. (laughs) (laughs) So I stay around. I keep going to the Bible study. Eventually, I walk up to the campus minister. I was like, man, my brother's always talking about this conference. He's a part of this impact thing. And I want to go, but I don't have $200. And so the gentleman's name was Byron Johnson. He says, just keep coming around and we may be able to take care of you. So I was like, all right. I stuck around. I kept coming to the Bible study. He walks up to me like somewhere around November, maybe early December. And he's like, hey, I noticed that you've been coming around faithful. We'll cover you. You know, you just got to figure out how to get down there. And I was like, absolutely. Find out my brother's taking a group of students down there as well. I go there first night. James White preaches this message called Divine Distinction. I had never heard anybody talk about the crucifixion and the way in which he preached about it. And he gives this challenge. He says, Jesus, this is a God on the cross. He says, what will you do with this God on the cross? And I just sat there thinking like, ah, as the young folks say now, I don't want that smoke. (laughs) And I'm sitting there thinking like, ugh. What am I going to do with this God on the cross? And I just remember just starting weeping, like being broken. And the funny thing is, Rasul, I'm sure you were there that day. Mm -hmm. There were about 100 other people in those chairs weeping who, and this is 30, 40 minutes after the message is over, people have left. There's still like hundreds of people just sitting in chairs, just weeping, crying out to the Lord. And I was one of them. And I didn't know what to do, bro. I didn't like. I knew some simple things that my brother had taught me before, and I had heard in Bible study. And I just remember going to my brother's room afterwards and being like, "I think I'm a Christian." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "I don't know, but I feel sorry and I feel bad that Jesus died on the cross, man. And I can't live the way I live no more." And we just talked for an hour. In that same moment, he calls this gentleman. He's like, "Hey, I want you to meet this other dude who just became a Christian too. He's a part of our Bible study as well." And the gentleman comes in the room and it's Lecrae. Mm-hmm. And so Lecrae and I like meet each other for the first time. He's like, man, both of y'all love rap. I heard both of y'all rap. Y'all should get to know each other. And so we kind of start talking, boom, boom, boom. But I go back to Tuskegee. I was living with a young lady. I'm like, hey, we can't live together no more. <laughs> I told my roommates, I was like, bro, something got to change. I ended up moving back to the dorm. That's how desperate I was because mm. I was, this is crazy. I was like, I can't live in this house anymore with this girl and these dudes and stay on the beaten path of righteousness and mm. walk worthy of the calling. That's amazing to see you get connected to Lecrae and to your brother. And it's kind of, it was like foreshadowing of what was yeah, to come. Absolutely. All right. So you come back from the conference, you kind of reorient your life, you move to the dorm, which man, being off campus that you was really carrying your cross. Brother. Hey, I love some Jesus. <laughs> I love some Jesus. That's how much I love Jesus back then. tell you. <laughs> I know in my own story, like it took a while to see the connections between the faith and your cultural insights. For you, was that immediate, the sense of your black identity and the faith, or did that take time? No, it was like these pendulums. So when I arrived at Tuskegee, I was like, we're going to start a revolution here somehow, some way. And then, you know, I become a Christian and it almost felt as if the aspect of who I was, the cultural, the social sensibilities that I held to had to not only just be submitted to Jesus, but almost like forgotten. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't as if someone said like, hey, you can't love these things anymore or you can't acknowledge these things anymore, but they didn't affirm it. Mm -hmm. 
and in Christian spaces in which I existed, it seemed as if like, okay, well, I can't bring my full self here because I started off in a, in a very Pentecostal church when I became a Christian. And then uh, to my own fault, I will admit this, I felt like those churches that I were attending in the backwoods of Tuskegee were deficient. And so I began to seek like, man, I need more. And that led me to Presbyterian churches. And when I landed at these Presbyterian churches, I was like, well, I'm a little bored, but man, this teaching is doing something to me intellectually. And I felt like that was sufficient. And so in those particular spaces, I felt like this cultural disconnect, but there was something intellectually that was being stimulated. And so the books that I would read, I would find like, oh, well, apparently there were no African-Americans who contributed to the faith. (laughs) Or, well, not just African-American, anybody outside of white men. You know what I mean? And so let me give you a little context of the kind of church I was a part of too. So it was a Presbyterian, but it was an old school Presbyterian. Like, so ain't no clapping, (laughs) ain't just an organ. That's it. There's no drums. Ain't nobody, not even an acoustic guitar. Wow. That's quite a shift from Pentecostalism to So that's what I'm saying. And not only that, the individual who invited me to the church, my disciple, if you will, at the time, and I was like, hey, bro, where do you go to church? Because- I'm struggling. Like, I just, I'm struggling. He said, I don't think you'll like my church. (laughs) And I was like, I don't care. Just tell me which churches that I'm coming. So eventually I came along with another young sister. And so literally his family, myself, and this young lady were the only black people in the church. Mm. And so at first it was very awkward, but eventually I kind of got through it. And so it wasn't just that we were the only black people. There was this age differential, like- (laughs) There was nobody under the age of 25 in the church except for like kids. So you had children, these two black kids who were like 18, 19, 20, and then you had like these 30, 40 year olds. And so it was weird because not only was it this racial disconnect, it was this cultural disconnect. And so what ended up happening is I was somewhat charismatic and influential on our campus. So I went back and told other students I went here, I was like, yo, man, the teaching's fire. Like they got me reading this dude named Calvin. I'm like, hey, I'm like, this is crazy. And other students was like, well, bro, I want that knowledge too. You know what I'm saying? I want to know what a tulip means. So I'm like, well, come and see. <laughs> come and see, my friend. And so all of a sudden you have upwards to maybe like 30 black college students wow. going to this church. And praise God, like these older white upper middle class families start taking us in, inviting us to their homes consistently, having dinners and lunch and giving us jobs. And it was wonderful until it wasn't wonderful. (laughs) Until you start to realize there is uh, the conflict and the tension that rises socially, politically, and oftentimes some, you know, relationally is unyielding, like there's no compromise in some of the things that you believe and you feel. And I'll just give one example. I remember once the black students would do outreach, they would you know, reach out to the poor in the community and they would bring in like these young kids who were from the hoods mm-hmm. or some folks who didn't look like they had material wealth yeah. to the church. And you can kind of sense like it was creating some discomfort in the church to where they would kind of start suggesting, you know, maybe you guys shouldn't do this anymore. Mm. You know what I mean? And we're like, huh? Like you probably, you shouldn't just, you know, there's another church that y'all should probably like recommend they go to. And then it all hit the fan when my man, one of the pastors preached on slavery. 
It was probably one of the worst sermons I can remember to this date. And it was a five minute, just like, all right, it happened. And, you know, eh. <laughs> on to, you know, wait, wait, like, wait, wait, what? Wait. And so he decided to address the issue of American chattel slavery. Yes. Yeah. Chattel race slavery. And it was <laughs> slavery yes. in America. And it was just like, it happened. And Paul said, obey your masters and let's move on. All the black students was looking at each other like, Wow. Wait, hold up. Now, this is Tuskegee University. So we may not be the most theologically savvy group of people, but one thing we know is black history and black plight and black struggle. And so we all look at each other like, something about this ain't right. Like, mm. And I'll say this, though. At that point in my life, I realized there was something about the people that I admired, the Douglases, the, the Washingtons, the Du Boises, the... Tubman's, the Phyllis Wheatley's, that folks that I was forced to read that at one point I probably wasn't excited about. But as I got older, I was like, man, these folks are luminaries. And then coming to the faith, feeling like, oh, the only people that I can read are Puritans and uh, these theologians. What I ended up doing was, to fast forward a little later, I said, you know what? There's something about the faith, the lived faith of the Douglas and the Tubman mm-hmm. that is more impressionable to me than a George Whitfield, who they have me like praising, who at the same time was trying to fight for slavery in Georgia. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, like, why don't we call Frederick Douglass and Tubman a theologian? Mm-hmm. Why don't we see them as people who are worthy of being read and talked about in the pulpit? And I just realized that at that point, these individuals who like to call on the Edwards and the Whitfields and the Kuypers, though they have good things to say, the tension is is that they had the luxury to just sit there and expound on <laughs> soteriology and polity and all these things because the very <laughs> essence of their being wasn't being questioned. Right. You know what I mean? Great segue into your book. He saw that it was good. You say the Christian faith is one both of mind and body. It is cognitive and corporeal. Explain to us what that means and how that framing may help us see some of the blind spots in some of the traditions that may have missed it. Dabney, the Southern theologian, Presbyterian pastor, was lamenting the fact that his slaves were free because now it didn't give him the discretionary time to study his scriptures and to preach. So now he had to actually work the fields. Mm. He was like, oh, these slaves are free now. So now I have to actually do work. I can't actually spend time in God's word. And that to me is a very cognitive theology. Like God is only honored in the knowledge that we obtain and the communication of things. But why doesn't God care about not only the liberation of the mind and the spirit, but the liberation of the body, like the physical being? And so to make a right a little bit, this is the reason why I feel like people don't admire like certain type of work. Like labor, hard labor work is not dignified because it's not seen as sophisticated. But God calls us to work the land. Like in Genesis 1, we see there's a call to cultivate and there's a call to subdue. And so there's honor and dignity in the physical work. So if God cares about our physical being, he also cares about our physical liberation, our physical freedom, our ability to move. That's why he heals people. Amen. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And so to me, to have a theology that only affirms the intellectual, that only affirms the cognitive to me is an incomplete theology. And I often feel as 
our brother Dr. Carl Ellis talks about like an A and B theology, oftentimes there is a theology that is all about intelligence and right theology, but not right practice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think some of us can learn from those folks. And this is why I mentioned the, you know, the Douglases and, you know, they may not be able to break down the hypostatic union to a T, but I bet you they can, <laughs> in a very practical way, teach you how to live out to live fully human in a way that honors God and honors your brothers and sisters. When we come back, Sho will tell us how he began his collaboration with Lecrae and Reach Records. He'll also reveal how, inspired by the embodied faith of Black Christians from history, he started to form his own identity as an artist at great personal cost. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Thank you so much for listening to Where You're From. Before we jump back into our conversation with Show Baraka, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next guest, Jen Peterson. This is Where You're From. I remember him telling the story of a girl who was chained to a bed and had actually, when they rescued her, they had found that she had inscribed on the wall behind her, Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And I just was weeping in my seat. And I I also kind of felt like one of those moments where it was like the Holy Spirit was just kind of tapping on my shoulder like, Jen, I want you to do something about this. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And in just a moment, we'll jump back into our conversation with Show Baraka. But before we do, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. They not only contain the talking points for today's show, but some links to learn more about Show Baraka, including his new music and music video created for a documentary about Juneteenth. Juneteenth Faith and Freedom is a full-length feature film from the Voices Collection of Our Daily Bread Ministries, hosted by me. Join me as I travel to Texas to learn more about the history and the hope behind Juneteenth. You can find these links in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Now let's get back to our conversation with Show Baraka on Where You're From. I went back to Tuskegee. Went to school in another year, ended up having to transfer, made a decision to transfer to where my brother was, which was University of North Texas. He was a campus minister, going to seminary, and I just wanted to be around Christians. I was like, man, I want to go somewhere where I can be around people who love Jesus. Mm -hmm. So ended up in Texas. While I'm there, I meet some individuals who love rap. And once again, I was like, oh, Lecrae, we met at Impact. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we hit it off. Another gentleman named Tadashi wasn't at school at that point in time. He was actually living in Houston, but he would drive up every now and then because he had a friend who lived in Denton, Texas, that he would visit. And so it got to a point where we were just hanging all the time. We ended up getting an apartment together. A gentleman that you know named James Roberson <laughs> yeah. ended up <laughs> being my roommate with Lecrae and Tadashi. And we just had this apartment where... 
all the Holy Ghost fun was happening. (laughs) (laughs) And so we just had this desire to make Jesus known on our campus. Lecrae and another gentleman named BJ Thompson, they read Romans 116 and they was like, yo, that's us. Mm-hmm. We unashamed of the gospel. We just gonna run around and just tell everybody we unashamed of the gospel. So they start like we the one one six click, <laughs> and I was like, y'all are ridiculous. <laughs> and so Lecrae was like, yo, I'm gonna make an album. And eventually, he put a bunch of songs together. He asked me to be on one of those songs. That album came Real Talk, which was his very first album. Yes, and. He started going to different places to perform. Long story short, he ended up going to this camp called Kanaka, which also is connected to KAA. You know? (laughs) Yep. And he would perform there. And what would happen there, and this is how I think it really kind of took off. What would happen is you would have all these youth groups and these, you know, folks who would descend to Missouri for the summer and they would go home with resources. So you hear this Christian rapper who at the time is much different than the cross movement because cross movement is very theological. They're very East Coast boom bap. And at the time, showing respect to other Southern rappers, but nobody really was like hitting like Lecrae was hitting. Mm -hmm. He was like Little John, Lil Wayne. It was just like this obnoxious in your face, like Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And so Lecrae was making like hype crunk music as they called it back then. And so you had like the East Coast strength of like the Shylins and the cross movements. And then you had Lecrae. And so all of a sudden, people were like, this dude out of the South. And he got some homeboys that's rapping with him. And then there was like, yo, we should make a compilation album. So we made his album called 116 Click. At that time, I was like, man, I love this dude named Kanye West. Like, that's what I want to be. And so my music was trying to sound more like Kanye. (laughs) I was nowhere close, but I was trying to sound like Kanye. And so the people who was like, yeah, yeah, I can dig the cross movement. I can dig that Southern stuff. But there's this dude right here who sounds a little different than the other ones. He's just a little different. And that's how I kind of like got pushed into making music. Folks was like, yo, man, you should make an album, make an album. And so in 2007, I made my first album, Turn My Life Up. So at what point did you realize this is going to actually be a thing? It took a while, actually. Um Cause I, I don't think I was able to like be the sole breadwinner in my house until about my second album, which was Lions and Liars. Yep. Because I was just happy for people to want to hear me rap. And so I'm like, yo, whatever y'all pay me, pay me. I'm cool. I'll just come through and I'll just rap to 10 people. I do not care. Oh, Lecrae don't want to do it. I'll do it. Mm. Oh, trip busy. Hey, send me. I'll go. <laughs> and so at that point, it, it took a while. I knew I wanted to do it. But at the same time, however, you know, I just finished school studying television and film. I knew I wanted to, like, be a filmmaker. Mm. I was like, man, I still want to make videos. I want to make short films. I want to make documentaries, etc. And so I was supplementing what I wasn't making enough in music, like with film production stuff. Fast forward a little bit, I am wrestling with this for some years now. And if I can also throw in the idea that I am in my late 20s as well, knowing I'm about to hit my 30s. And it's not just that I'm wrestling with racial identity. I'm wrestling with the very disposition of Christian music in general. Like, what is this subgenre of Christian hip-hop and Christian music for not gospel music gospel is its own entity is kind of like lives and moves and has its being outside of christian hip-hop and ccm and i'm sitting here thinking like who are we you know who am i how am i being used 
Around the same time, Oscar Grant in California is shot. I'm aware of that. There's a situation in Chicago with a sister named Rakia Boyd is shot. I'm aware of that. And they both shot by police officers, by the way, uh, unarmed. And my uncle, years, 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 years ago, was choked out by police officers. Mm. I lived during the Rodney King beating. I mean, I lived right. in California in during California. the Rodney King. Yeah. Yep. So I know racial tension. Like, I know what that's like. You know what I'm saying? And so you go and do these festivals, you do these youth groups, you do these churches. And I'll say this, too, just a footnote. Black churches... And I say black churches, you're, you're mostly your black traditional churches shunned us as well. Us as in Christian rappers. Yeah, Christian rappers shunned us Christian rap. They weren't excited about having Christian rappers come to their churches. And so your more non-denominational black mm-hmm. churches would have us. But the main people who have us was the non-denominational black churches and just white evangelical churches. Right. They loved us. And they loved the idea of using hip hop to reach the youth and reach the neighborhood. But one of the things that became a rise in tension was, for me, I felt like, I once again, who I am is being challenged. There are things I can't rap about. I can't talk about racial issues. I feel like I can't bring up political issues. I feel like I can't talk about age-appropriate things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, because most of the people who are inviting us, they're inviting us for us to rap to their youth. And I'm like 29, 30, and I'm like, I'm not rapping for 14-year-olds. <laughs> and so that hit me, man. And I started to wrestle with, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And I remember I went to New York, bro, and I uh, went to a conference held by Mako Fujimura. Mm-hmm. And it's called the I Am Conference. And I remember just hearing this idea of art and being communicated from a posture that I had never really heard before. And I remember that same weekend, I had a meeting with another brother who was a um, a theologian. And I don't recommend this for everybody, but for me, he said, show you read way too many theologians to be a thinker and creative. You need to start reading more sociologists, philosophers, and artists. Because if that's what you want to be and that's what you want to do, you need to figure out how to flood those spaces and challenge their thinking and know what they're thinking rather than trying to be a pastor. Mm. And I was like, man, thank you. I just needed that affirmation because I had felt that for so long. Mm-hmm. I felt like every institution I was a part of was just trying to make me a pastor, mm. not a marketplace minister. And so this conference that was telling me how to be a marketplace missionary, this individual I'm sitting with is giving me this wonderful advice and resources to affirm me to go go back and read Du Bois, go back and read Douglas, like dive into these writings. And that's how my album Talent and Tenth came about. Because I was like, you know what? I feel liberated, y'all. Thank you. <laughs> I remember Talent and Tenth coming out. Tell us about what you were hoping to communicate through that project and, you know, why you decided to approach it the way you did. Absolutely. Which I think it was a masterpiece, personally. Thank you. So... There was a time period before I left Reach where we were the darlings of urban ministry for a lot of white evangelicals. And we were being mercenaries in a lot of ways for culture wars. And during that time, whoever your favorite pastor was in the early 2010s, I sat in that person's living room, looked them in the eye, heard things that I loved that they said and heard things that I detested that they said. And I realized that something has to change because there's a huge disconnect here. It's the contextualizing of the gospel. Everybody contextualizes the gospel in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes what privileged people don't realize that they're contextualizing it, right? And so I'm sitting here like, yeah, but what you're saying is offensive to us. 
This is not a biblical issue. You are impressing on us cultural things. And you're not understanding like the legacy of hate and et cetera, et cetera. And you're silent on these issues. And I just can't be that way anymore. Because hmm. I feel like God is grieved. And not only do I feel it, I have evidences of people throughout history who've spoken against this. And they are Christians who love Jesus. And so for some reason, why now is it okay to be silent? And so I was like, you know what? Not only am I going to speak on these political issues, not only am I going to speak on the injustice in America, I am also going to affirm blackness in a way that I have not seen it affirmed in Christian music, at least from my vantage point. And so Talented Tenth, for those who know, was a concept that Du Bois kind of adopted. And I took it and said, hey, how can I make this more, <laughs> I guess you can say less elitist and more Christian <laughs> in the concept of how do we celebrate who we are, but take those folks who understand the idea of discipleship to flood the communities and raise up the culture through a godly love, godly practice, godly principles, to basically give your life as a ransom for other people. And so that album talks about a lot of Black individuals, Black Christians, Black legacy. There's a lot of challenging of political ideas. The one thing that you kind of said in your book that I think might be helpful in this, you wrote I don't believe we need a new Christianity, but I think we need a true Christianity, a Christianity with honesty and dignity, a Christianity that embraces the gold and the shadow of its history. Tell us about what you mean by the gold and the shadow and a truer Christianity that's honest, because I think that's what it seemed like you were trying to approach with Talented 10. I kind of start off the introduction. I talk about these four individuals whom I love to this day and I celebrate and read to this day, but I also talk about some of the shadows. I mentioned G.K. Chesterton, who I think is one of the sharpest minds of our day, but was very slow to support suffrage. I talk about uh, Du Bois, who I think is a very, very sharp mind, again, one of the smartest individuals to walk this earth, but you know, gave a glowing review about Stalin amongst his war atrocities. Talk about King, and obviously we know Martin Luther King to be the revolutionary that he was, but also you know, there's the shadow of his womanizing. And so the point is this, is that if we're honest, not only about our heroes, we'll be honest about ourselves, and we'll be honest about the things in which we stumble upon within our Christian faith. And I think that would create a humble disposition. And I'm a butcher a phrase myself from a book, when your pride is high and your humility is low and you're absolute that you're right, there's a chance that you can create great atrocities. And I think oftentimes what we do as humans, we come with very little humility, with absolute certainty in our ideologies, and we weaponize our beliefs and swing them at other people without even considering like, what about what I believe could be very challenging? And how can I have a humble disposition? And I feel like a lot of evangelical history has not really been honest about their heroes. Mm. I heard people talk about well, why there aren't a lot of black theologians in history and without acknowledging the fact that there was racism that created that disparity mm. and didn't allow theologians to go to seminaries or to read and to study. And you're going to beleaguer the point that there's no black theologians to read? 
But even in that, you don't acknowledge when people are living out the faith versus when they're just communicating the faith. And one of the things that I notice about you, and I want to turn to the narrative real quick, because both in Talented 10th from the name, which evokes, as you mentioned, W.E.B. Du Bois and him coining that phrase. But then each of the songs are, you know, you're referencing Mahalia or Jackson or some other luminary, Muhammad Ali. In the narrative, you actually take it a step further and use these years that if someone is acquainted, like I am with African-American history, you know that these are very significant. Mm -hmm. When did history become so important to you and why do you think it's so important as an artist? Gosh, there's like three different things that popped in my head right now. (laughs) Toni Morrison talks about memory Mm -hmm. and the importance of memory in the same way that the Bible has these Ebenezers, these capstones throughout history. It's like, hey, you should remember this because if you don't, you guys will be doomed to repeat the same atrocities or be trampled on and trampled over. Remember the faithfulness of God. And I do think in a lot of ways, Carter G. Woodson talks about how the Negro set under the oppressive pen of the slave owners and allowed them to sketch their identity. Mm. And my challenge is, is I don't want anybody to sketch my identity. Mm. I need that memory. I need, (laughs) that's why I think it's important, man. I just feel like the imagination, creativity gives us an opportunity to reimagine a world which is not real right now. Fiction is such a powerful thing because it recalibrates what could be, if you will. And so for me, understanding history and including that in creativity is a way to disarm people as well because a lecture, people sometimes come already defensive, waiting to be like, hmm. Let me see what this person going to say. And there's more leniency given to creatives and artists because there's creative license. As I raise these questions and these challenges through my art and I pose these questions, I want people to drive back to like, man, what does he mean? And hopefully lead them to a place of a deeper understanding of God and deeper understanding of their brothers and sister and themselves. Yeah, no, that's good. You write, why does black history always start with slavery? So even when I'm learning, they're still putting the chains on me. And I think this really captured this leaning into the aspect of story and getting our stories right and the true stories that we tell versus false stories. Share with us a little bit about the importance of story to you and getting the story right and how that connects to that verse. Yeah, in my first chapter, I talk about stories. I just, man, I talked about early how hip hop was a formation for me. Like it was identity formation. Mm-hmm. How whatever they said, do, I did. I think all of us can think of some sort of creative story or some thing that someone communicated, a film that we watched, a song that we heard and remember like, oh, I do this because of that song. Mm. Muhammad Ali has this wonderful <laughs> tirade. He goes on. Um, when he's being interviewed by the BBC. And he talks about how he became a Muslim. And he says, you know, I grew up in this Christian nation and I would ask my mamas, why is every picture of Jesus white? Why are all the angels white? Why is the ugly duckling black? Why is angel cake white and (laughs) devil food food black? And then he says, I go over to, you know, Europe and I fight for America and I win the the medal and I just know I'm going to come back just a champion. I go to Kentucky and I sit in a diner and they say, we don't serve Negro pie here. He's like, well, that's good because I don't eat Negro. (laughs) And he says at that moment, he realized he was a second class citizen. And he said, and this Christian nation who say they love Jesus so much, 
And all these stories, right? These stories that are being told about who Jesus is are whiteness and religion. Because he even talks about Tarzan being in Africa, being able to speak to the animals, having dominion over this continent, right? Mm. But all these indigenous people can't do the things that Tarzan do. So these are superior stories of whiteness. And so those are stories that shape us, that get us to believe a certain thing. But he said, I felt like I was getting a different story from the Muslims. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I became a Muslim. And to me, that is heartbreaking. Uh, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's how stories impact us. And I just want to make sure I'm telling a different story. Mm -hmm. Well, you're doing that. The story doesn't end uh, with Talented 10th and... Even though it was groundbreaking in one sense, you're getting a lot of good feedback. There was also this sense of where the booking stopped. But you keep going and you put out the narrative. And of course, something happens by the time the narrative comes out in the culture where a lot of the yeah. things that you were talking about years earlier have, for a variety of reasons, become mainstream in terms of the social, you know, political right. justice conversation. How did the reaction to the narrative different from Talented 10th? Oh, I was... I was a genius then. Like, I went from <laughs> I went from being <laughs> a martyr and a fool to a genius. Because then you have Michael Brown, you know, Trayvon happens while I'm making the album, because I do mention Trayvon Martin on the album. But Michael Brown happens, and then you have the burgeoning of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so now everybody's like talking about race and racial justice and now the folks who were once ostracizing me are asking me to come speak now. Mm. The one thing that did happen, and I'll say this, the Lord provides. He took me out of one palace, which was kind of like the evangelical palace of rapping, and he put me in the academic palace. Mm. And so as I was not getting offers to rap as much as I usually did before Talented Tent, people started asking me to come speak at colleges and come speak here. I got offers to teach in particular universities. And although it wasn't like enough money to support my family, it created a new passion in me mm -hmm. to be a more of a thinker, a reader, and a writer. Mm -hmm. That happened. And so when the narrative comes around, what's happening now, I, I believe to be this holistic approach of who Shobaraka is like it was almost like the maturity of an athlete who hits his prime like physically that athlete is filling themselves but also intellectually they know the game you know what I mean yeah. and so it's like my body's doing the things I wanted to do and I'm smarter than a lot of the people on the court and I felt for me I know I'm a better artist than I was back then and I feel like I'm a much smarter or wiser individual today and the narrative was one of those projects as I feel like my next projects will be those types of projects where I am able to reconcile all the things that I'm learning and who I am and bring that to <laughs> fruition. Mm. The thing that really impresses me about your work, I think of your song, Maybe Both, in the narrative, in the book, you, you kind of alluded to this, the complexity and the nuances of the good and the bad in us, you know, the shadow and the gold, as you say. How important is it that you think we hold those things in tension? And, and how did you get to embrace that insight? I think it's important because we read a Bible that is very honest about the folks we admire. We could start in Genesis and end in Revelation with people who we exalt from Moses you know, Joshua, Joseph, David, Paul, Solomon, Peter, they all have deep flaws. 
And even flawed to a degree that if you and I were to commit some of the things that they did in scriptures, that we would be excommunicated from our churches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That amuses me that we would sing the songs of David. We would exalt, oh, David was a man after God's own heart. But you realize what this man did to Uriah, right? <laughs> and so it just makes me realize that God is a God of grace and forgiveness. Mm. And that our enemies are not too far gone that they're beyond redemption. And that we're not as righteous as we think we are. <laughs> and so at some point, you know, you got to reconcile that tension. It's like, well, how wicked is my opposition and how righteous am I? That's the equation that I'm always wrestling with when I'm working with people, dealing with people, discussing with people and realizing that the one thing that I do not have the luxury to do is to wrestle with the, I guess you could say the sin of Jonah, where I don't desire that people who are wicked and it caused me great harm and my people great harm that I can't afford them the chance of redemption and forgiveness. Mm. I think a lot of us think it righteous to withhold redemption from people or justified, if you will. And so for me, that's the gold in the shadow. It's like, I see it. I see it in myself. At the end of the day, I do think it's important for us to evaluate those two things. How, <laughs> how wicked is my opposition? How righteous am I really? What a challenge from show to remember that we aren't as righteous as we sometimes think and that the people we think are our enemies are never beyond the redeeming work of Christ. This realization helped show reconcile the tensions in his own story and has transformed him into the artist he is today, proclaiming his embodied faith. This is where you're from. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jay Dustafson, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Barry and Brian for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.